The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in February 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. An early playbill for the first show that today's guest was in on Broadway says something to the effect that he was, a, in his bio, a West Coast high school student with aspirations of one day going to dental school. Well, it's 40 years later. Our would-be dentist is here today in the form of Michael Rupert, the actor. Hi, Michael. Hi. How you doing? <laughs> We're doing fine. Currently starring in uh, Legally Blonde on Broadway's Professor Callahan. The show to which I referred was The Happy Time back in 1968 on Broadway, your Broadway debut, for which you were nominated for a Tony Award, and you did receive the Theatre World Award. Sweet Charity, the revival in 1986, for which you did receive the Tony Award and the Drama Desk Award. Falsettos on Broadway, for which you were nominated for the Tony. Yeah. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Good now, to be here. Now, Legally Blonde, your character is kind of a scuzzy guy, to put it mildly. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's, it's funny sometimes. The, 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 the young little girls on the autograph line after the show, you know, like, aren't sure if they want my autograph or not. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, Callahan is, uh, he's the tough law professor that, uh, you know, when Elle Woods decides to go to Harvard chasing after her boyfriend, uh, right. he, um, he kind of puts her through the ringer, and, and he's a really tough guy. And, and then... Uh, and then, surprise, surprise, he hits on her, and and it just kind of shatters her. And but he he gets it in the end. I mean, he not not her. He gets <laughs> he gets kicked out in the end. <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah, he's a but, you know, he's a he's a, a kind of another one of of uh, I, I've actually played several characters in my life, m- not far from Callahan, where if they're looking for the guy who can be kind of the scuzzy sleazebag, but have a little charm, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and, and he's, you know, Callahan is, I've actually had people say to me that uh, went to law school, like, well, you were a little, you were even a little more charming than my law professors were. <laughs> but I never think of you as, well, since we keep using the phrase scuzzy sleazebag, <laughs> which is really grabbing the family audience today. I mean, you're, the major roles, which we're going to talk about, are all sort of uh, deep feeling figures and and maybe a little quirky. Who who would you say you've played that that, that well, aligns with this? Yeah. Well, well, actually, even like even like uh, Oscar in Sweet Charity is is he's a complete neurotic mess who ultimately dumps her and and. But yet he's got to be a real charming guy. You got to understand why Charity falls for him, and and the audience has to fall for him. You know. Uh, so he isn't he isn't sleazy he isn't a scuzzy guy but but it just seems like when it, you know a lot of the things that I've done in my life like like even Marvin in in, in falsettos mm-hmm. is a is a self centered uh, you know self absorbed guy guy who kind of treats everybody like hell you know and and but yet he's got to be charming and you gotta you gotta understand why everybody wants to be around Marvin you know yeah. uh, I mean certainly Callahan is 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 um, you know he he's he's pretty ruthless, I guess, or I, I don't know what sure the word is. Huh. You know, he he's uh, he's he's tough and and he has kind of amoral and he just thinks he can hit on the, the interns. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I have I have played a few, you know, and and some like in regional theater and things like that. I did a play called Splitting Infinity uh, up at the Jiva Center in Rochester. Uh, you know, same kind of character. Uh, but again, I mean, I, I, I guess, uh, you, you know, I guess I, they th- that people think I can do that, but with a certain amount of charm, so the, the audience <laughs> doesn't, like, totally hate the guy, you know. Well, we seem to have a, almost a theme going here already. Yeah. Is there something about these characters that attracts you to play them? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, they really, you know. I mean, I, I've also, you know, in, in, in some of the things that I've done, uh, certainly for, for musicals, I mean, in musicals, there's... Um, I, you know, I, I I would never be cast in something like Crazy for You. You know, I would not, not really. You know, I mean, these are these are kind of. Uh, I've been able to, to to have, you know, really some great jobs playing guys who are flawed and who are kind of strange and you know and and 
and just some of the more you know some of the more complicated I think uh, uh, characters in 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 musicals you know Tata in Ragtime I mean there's just there's just more to play there than if you know you're doing uh, a song and dance man which I I don't dance, so I'm not going to do a song and dance. <laughs> but do you long to play a more conventional musical comedy leading role? If 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 your stock and trade has been these these quirkier characters, uh, no, I really don't. I, I really don't. It's it's interesting now, you know, as a, you know, because I've I've actually been doing this a long time, and and as I get older, it's interesting to see like like. Uh, like the 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 older character parts that I'm being offered now, you know, the people are saying, "Would be interested in doing something like this," you know, and and uh, and I've always been kind of the uh, I think I've always kind of been the the character leading man kind of guy, you know. I mean, uh, never that never never the handsome leading man guy, the, the character leading man, and uh, and I prefer that. But now it's even getting to the point where, you know, a lot of the Quite honestly, I mean, a lot of the roles that I am getting off, will get offered at this point in my life are, you know, are not the conventional, you know, uh, romantic leads or anything. Because let's face it, I'm I'm older than that now, you know, <laughs> which is great, by the way. I love it. What's it like being now one of the more senior cast members in a in a young cast with with Legally Blonde? You're the you're the well, I am the senior man. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, it, it's actually was, I, I it, it, the first, I think the first week of rehearsal when we first started, when I realized that you know ninety. Five percent of the people in this show could be my child. You know, <laughs> I thought like this is going to be a strange experience. You know, and uh, and also that it's it, you know the business has changed over the years a lot. You know, because I've you know when I started as a kid in this business, it was a real. You know, the, the directors I worked for, like Gary Champion and Bob Fosse and those kind of people, were were demanded incredible discipline and and and. You know, being in in rehearsal for Legally Blonde, it was kind of like, you know, recess at school. Though everybody worked very hard. Well, I mean, Jerry it, Mitchell is not not a loose guy in terms of oh, he's pretty all. rigorous. No, in but what he's he wants very smart. He's very smart. The, the, the thing about Jerry is, because I even asked him at one point, I said, "Boy, everybody just seems to be goofing around a lot, and you're it's so loose here. I've never been in such a loose rehearsal." And. And, and yet, I mean, when everybody really had to focus, they did, of course. But the whole atmosphere of the rehearsal was very loose. And he said, you know what? It, it, it's that kind of show. He wants that kind of energy. You know, he wants it's, – it's full of kids who have to have this exuberance and, and be over the top and crazy and fun. And he didn't want to be like, uh, like you got to do it this way. you got to do it that. You know, he, 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 he didn't uh, – even when he demanded discipline, he did it in like a, like a almost like a big brother kind of way. Like, okay, come on, focus, everybody, focus. Let's go. Come on, I'm gonna. I want a full out. I want a full out. You know. But he'd say it with a smile. It, it was never. There was never any. Like, you never got pissed off at anybody. You know. I mean, he might have not around me, but. Um, but it was just interesting, and and it's been interesting because we've been doing this for over a year now since we opened in San Francisco. And uh, it's just a, a great group of people. I mean, it's it's actually one of the nicest casts I've ever worked with in my life. And and even though I still feel like the old guy, you know, <laughs> it, it they all really do, you know, they, they kind of look up to me a little bit or they, they respect me because I have been in the business longer than most of them have been alive. <laughs> do they ask yeah. you about other shows you've been in? I mean, do you... Yeah, well, of course, the the one show that most, a lot of them know is Falsettos, because that's a show, like, that 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 is even, like, taught in, the, you know, that's that's the kind of show that in some musical uh, theater uh, departments around the country, people actually t teach that show, you know, and... And they've listened to it. Falsettas was kind of a... It was a very unique show. There was nothing like it before. And there's not quite been anything like it since. And uh, so they know my work from that. And, and they know, you know, uh, my work from ca original cast albums and things like that. But when, uh, you know, when they just found out just, just, just a 
couple of weeks ago that I had just celebrated my 40th year on Broadway. <laughs> they were like shocked. I mean, they didn't realize I'd been doing it that long. And and they were just, uh, they're just, it's a great group of people. It really is. Well, that's been interesting for you because you're working with a cast who's at least a generation younger than you. Yeah. Yet your first show that you were in, you were a teenager working with an adult cast. That's right. So it must be a totally yeah. different perspective. Thinking back on 1968 when you were in the happy time and you were about 15 or 16 yeah. at the time, uh, what what is different b- between this show in terms of the mood and the energy level? Is there a difference than there was forty years ago with Gower Champion directing that show? Well, again, that 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 was it, like you say that was different because it was mostly an adult ca- cast. I mean, we had a we had a lot of boys in the show because it, uh-huh. BB, the character I played, went to this boys' school in French Canada, but. Uh, you know, but it was still you know there's Charlie Durning and 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 George S Irving and David uh, Wayne, David Wayne and, and Bob Goulet and I mean it, it it you know it had these like really terrific actors and 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 uh, Gower Champion um, was you know he he was tough I mean he was a he was a real strict director I mean one of the first things he ever said to me when he cast me. Uh, was that you know I'm not going to treat you like a kid. You're gonna I want you're gonna I'm gonna expect of you what I expect out of Bob Goulet or David or you know. He said so. So this is not just we're not going to just you're not going to just come in here and play. You're not just going to have some fun. This is going to be hard work, and I'm going to demand a lot of you. And uh, he did. You know he really did. He he he. He really worked me hard for a, you know, and I was a 15-year-old kid when he cast me, you know, and, uh, uh, but I learned a lot from that. I mean, I've, you know, just from that first experience with a, with a, a strict director like that, uh, you know, I, I have kept that with me for the last 40 years. I mean, I, I am a, I, I really have terrific discipline when I work and, and, uh, I have fun, too, but, you know, I really, I've, I've learned to do that. So as a teenager, how did you deal with that? You were still in school, obviously. Yeah, you were still yeah. having to learn and not only learn the business, but learn reading, well, writing, arithmetic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I, well, I was cast in Los Angeles because uh-huh. that's where I'm from. And I'd been doing some acting out there even younger than that in television and, 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 uh, and theater. Uh, so, of course, when, when, you know, when I got cast in The Happy Time... We had to figure out what I was going to do for school, you know. So I came, you know, so I, I went to professional children's school and uh, and they have, you know, they have classes so that you don't go to school on Wednesday afternoon. Mm-hmm. You know, you go during, you know, you have you so you can do your matinee. Could you do eight shows a week back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You were old enough to do that. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. What, what is the rule for children? So- there, I, there are no rules uh, here in New York. There are rules in in Los Angeles, in California, for how how long someone can work. You know, uh, you can only work five hours a day, and you have three hours of school. I think that's right. Four, yeah, three hours of school and one hour for lunch or something like that. I think that's what it is. So, had had you been acting before the Happy Time? Obviously, what, what was your what was your your first acting? Experience? My very first acting gig was. Uh, I actually did. I grew up right near the Pasadena Playhouse uh-huh. in California. So the, I took a class. I just asked my parents if I could take a class there. And how I old wanted, were you? I was t- uh, 11. And because uh, I knew that I wanted to, to, I was a singer and I knew I wanted to act. And, and I just thought it'd be fun. And um, they um, they let me audition for, for a pl- my My parents said, okay, if you want to audition for this other play, you can. Uh, after I'd worked at the Pasadena Playhouse, I got cast in a production of Peter Pan with Vincent Price as Captain Hook. And I was 12 years old, and uh, and a girl named Janet Blair, who was like Mary Martin's understudy, or, or she did the road companies of South Pacific, you know, she played Peter Pan. And I was, um, and I got my equity card when I was 12. But then I continued doing, uh, you know, I, I, I actually had an agent. I got an agent, and my parents were supportive. That, but they thought that I would only do it until I, you know, like as a kid. And know. that you would grow out of it and become a dentist. Absolutely. Well, I, the funny thing is I, I had an orthodontist who had 
he and his wife had put him put him through dental school at USC by being a competition ballroom dance team. And so he, my doctor had this idea that I was going to act to put myself through dental school. <laughs> and, I was gonna, and I actually was interested in becoming an orthodontist or a speech therapist or something like that at one time. And my parents, again, of course, thought that that's what I was going to do. And then when I got cast in The Happy Time at 15 and my mother had to move with me to New York, a place we'd never been mm-hmm. for a year... And she thought, oh, my God, this is like, is this serious? This is like big. T- this is big. You know, he was a lead in a Broadway show. And then I got a Tony nomination for The Happy Time. And then she's sitting there with me. My my family are sitting there with me at the Tony Awards. And my mother, la- many years later, s- said that's that's when they kind of realized that maybe <laughs> he could really do this for a living, that he was really serious. Because here I was 16 years old. I had turned 16. Here I was 16 years old, and I was I got a Tony nomination. And when, and when did you realize you could do it for a living? Was that the time during that show? Um, yeah, I think so. I think it, when I, when I, because I, being on Broadway was like amazing. It was really an amazing thing. And being in New York, I mean, it was just, you know, and as soon as I left New York and went back to Los Angeles to, to, to finish up high school, I just looked for a way to get back to New York. But I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to come to New York and be a waiter. You know, I, I wanted to, and I knew that I could work in Los Angeles. So after graduating high school, I continued to work in L.A. I did lots of uh, television you know things like the the, the Partridge Family and the Waltons. A couple and, of years on the Jim Neighbors show. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> the Jim Neighbors show. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right after high school, actually, uh, much to my parents' chagrin, I did not go to college because I was offered a job as a regular on Jim Neighbors' variety show on CBS, and it was great money. And it was actually, I thought, okay, this is how I'm going to make money so I can move to New York. You know, either that or I need to get offered a job that's going to take me to New York. So I spent two years on the Jim Neighbors Good Time Hour, as they called it on CBS. And uh, I was uh, I, I was in a group called the Neighbors Kids. And there were four girls and four boys who did backup singing, did some dancing. There were also dancers on the show, though. But we did, excuse me, we were in like the opening number and the big finale that they'd always have in those shows. And um, and then we also got to play little parts in the comedy sketches, which, which I loved, which was great. And it really was, it was a fascinating uh, couple of years. We went on tour with Jim the summer between the two seasons. And, you know, I look back now, and it's amazing what a huge star Jim Neighbors was mm-hmm. in, like, 1970. I mean, it was amazing. We sold out, we sold out Muni Opera in St. Louis for, for like, three, three, three nights. We would play Tahoe. We would play Vegas. We would play all these tents all over the place. It was pretty cool. It was wild. Back to the happy time, uh, working with these people like Robert Goulet, like mm. David Wayne, like Garrett Champion. Right. What, what specifically did you learn from that? Discipline, I presume, but wh- what else did you learn from working in that environment? Well, the first thing, the first thing that certainly that I learned is, is just, you, you know, what it takes to do eight shows a week. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to do, uh, even for even for a kid. You know, it's it's tiring. And so I learned, you know, I learned a lot. Uh, I just learned a lot about, you know, like John Kander and Fred Ebb taught me how to deliver a song. Mm. You know, um, Goulet, of course, was like my big brother. You know, he was always slapping me on the, you know, slapping me on the head saying, we, we got to go get you laid, kid. You know, <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, this is like, you know, I mean, he was like, he was like a big goofball, you know. Uh-huh. David Wayne was, you know, uh, I, again, I learned a lot watching him because he was such a meticulous actor. Very private man, though. I didn't really get to know David that well the, the year that I did The Happy Time. Bob, I got to know quite well. Uh, watching Charlie Durning. He didn't even have that big a part. Charles Durning didn't have that big a part in the show, but he would he would come up with bits of business that were so perfect for his character that, I th- that even then I said, that, it, out of this entire group, Charlie Durning is the, ac- is the true actor. 
I mean, he's in there. They were all good, but he was the one that just saw it as a, such a craft, and and he was great. Interesting as a fifteen year old, you to uh, to be able to discern that. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, I was relatively bright <laughs> and just wanted to you know i mean i've always in my whole life i've always been someone who studies people as a lot of actors do you know you watch behavior you you, you know you, you're always your eyes are always open and uh your your character bb well bb is uh uh is a kid growing up in french canada and uh with a dysfunctional family and an and and a rogue uncle who who comes back to town and uh and BB is just enamored of him, and because uh, he, he's a he's a world famous photographer, and of course, ultimately, he finds out that it, that's all a fraud, and he grows up. So we almost skipped past some of that about the happy time, but let's now go to how did you get from the Jim Neighbors show. <laughs> back into the legit world because it was certainly a few years before we were seeing you again in New York. Yeah. Well, well, not not too long. I mean, I I I I did the I guess I came back to New York when I was about 21 or 22 maybe. Um I actually did I had worked at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. And at the time the casting director was Gordon Hunt, Helen Hunt's dad, who was also my acting coach. And I, I t- would take his class. And I remember one night in, like, early 1972. No. No, it was 74. So I was a little older, yeah. I, I, I it's so long ago now. <laughs> in 74, he, he, he took me aside after, after class one night, and he was, still, he was still the casting director at the taper at the time. And he said, would, would you be interested in playing Pippin on Broadway? And I said, "Well, yeah." <laughs> I mean, the show this, was already running. The on show Broadway. was already running. It had been run. It, I think Pippin opened in '72, so this was like two, almost two years later, or this was like a, a year and a half later. And Bob Fosse was looking for someone to replace John Rubenstein, excuse me, in the role of Pippin. And uh, so uh, Stu Ostro, the the producer of Pippin. Uh, was flying out to Los Angeles, and Gordon Hunt was going to set up a few people for him to see out there. So I came in. Uh, I went in and auditioned for Stu Ostro. Uh, I sang Corner of the Sky. And uh, he, like, immediately said, could you fly back to New York with me tomorrow hmm. to meet Bob? I said, Okay. Yeah, let, let, let me let me check my schedule, <laughs> and uh, and I flew back to New York the next day, and they put me up in a hotel, and on the the, the Pippin was playing at the Imperial Theater, and on this and and I auditioned on the stage of the Imperial Theater for Bob Fosse for Pippin, and and he was and Bob was great. Because uh, he, he, he didn't, like, sit out there in the dark like you see in the movies sometimes. But he was, like, right there, like, not on the stage, but right at the lip of the stage, like, watching me. And then he'd walk back, and he'd ask me to do something else. And I sang again for him again uh, and all of that. Uh, and uh, he just thanked me. He said, thank you very much. You know, that, that, was, that was terrific. And... Um, and one of the like the company manager or something, uh, I think it was a company manager now said, uh, "We'll we'll just we'll give you a call at your hotel, and, and you'll hear from us in the next couple hours." And a couple hours later, they called and and they said Bob would like you to be in Pippin, be in the show. And but the interesting thing was, I, had, I this audition for him was like in like May. And I wasn't really going into the show until October. So I went back to to Los Angeles with my new Pippin script and the score. And and it's like I had several months to just think, you know, just to think about, oh, I'm going to move to New York and, and be in Pippin. And, uh, and it was kind of like exactly how I wanted things to happen because I, 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 got, I, I got back to New York with a job playing a lead in a Broadway show and uh, and I've really stayed ever since 
Now, auditioning for Fosse, where you could see him right in front of you, then yeah. having to sit in the hotel for a couple hours and wait for the phone to ring. How harrowing was that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, I remember I was sweating, sweating uh-huh. a little bit. You know, I was. I, I just wanted to know. I mean, what, what, what did, did I get? The, did I get the job? Did I not? What? What is it? You know, um, at the very, you know. Yeah, to look back on it, at the very least, I got a trip out of New York, a trip to New York out of it. But, uh, but I, I, I really wanted it bad. You know, I really wanted to, to wanted the part. I hadn't even seen the show. I hadn't even seen the show. Oh, that's also I remember now. That is what they said. I forgot when they when they could, did call and offer me the job. They say the, the the company manager said, "Have you seen the show?" I said, "No." <laughs> and 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 he said, "Well, why don't you come see it tonight?" So they, so I, I saw the show and was blown away by what Fosse had done. I mean, it was just like amazing work, and Ben Vereen was still in the show. You know, I mean, it was it was pretty great. And when you saw it, was that before or after you got the phone call saying you're in it? Did you know it this was point? after? So this you, was you after. knew you're in it already. Yeah. So right. I knew I was gonna. I, I was gonna. Uh, and interestingly, they took. I, I had known John Rubenstein just a little bit from Los Angeles because he grew up there too. I didn't know him well. But uh, they took me backstage to 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 say hi to John, and I said, uh, you know, I said, John, it looks like I'm I'm going to take over for you when you leave in a few months, and and he said, I'm leaving. Oh no no yeah, <laughs> really? Can you imagine? Um, no, he said, um, he said, well, you're going to have to call me and tell me what you th- what you think of all of this a few months after you're in it. Uh-huh. I want to see what you think. Because it actually, and I, and I found out what he meant. Uh, because Pippin is a very dark show. And in Bob Fosse's head, it was really about Charlie Manson and the Manson family. And it was about a charismatic man with his family, his group of players, who get these young boys to play the role of Pippin and put them through a series of experiences and disappoint them by manipulating everything and at the end say the only perfect thing to do is to kill yourself there you can find your corner of the sky and michael rupert or john rubenstein or whoever that actor is who's playing that person is who's playing pippin that particular performance is the first actor not to kill himself at the end and to opt for the family for the, the for the widow and the child and so for Two hours and twenty minutes, you have all of this, all of these people wanting you to destroy yourself. It's like this negative energy that when you watch the show, you don't quite get that. You don't see that because mm-hmm. Bob did this; he, he just staged it so beautifully. But when you talk to Bob Fosse about what Pippin was really about, it's very dark, wow. very dark. So, so after you were <laughs> in it for a few months. What did you think of it at that point? Well, in a few, well, first of all, it was it was an exhausting role to do. Pippin is almost never off stage, and I was and I was tired all the time, which John said he hated. He said I hate being tired all the time, <laughs> and um, but there was something about it that was, uh, you know, to be honest, it was not the happiest experience of my life, simply because there the, there was there was just a, such a darkness to the show. And such a kind of an, the way that Bob had directed it and, and, and the dancers in the show, the ensemble, were so great. But, you know, f- to have all of this negative energy coming at you every night, eight times a week, it, it started to get to, you know, it almost started to be like this, this show was kind of this black hole that I didn't, necess- I didn't really necessarily look forward to going to work mm-hmm. uh, after about six months. And I had signed for two years. And your yeah. first two Broadway shows, Gower Champion and Bob Fosse, right. working with two of the great directors of that, of that era, certainly of all right, time. Right, right. What, what kind of experience was that, a young actor working with two great legendary directors? Well, with, with Gower, I was so young that I didn't really quite get it. I mean, I knew that he was a famous director and he'd mm-hmm. been in movies and, and, and I knew he was, he was famous. But it was, it was only... I mean, I guess when I started working with Bob, I realized, because I had seen, he had already directed Cabaret, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, he, I knew his work. And, um, and I also, you know, liked Bob a great deal. And he liked me. I mean, we, we actually even ended up hanging out a bit together 
you know, and he'd invite me. Let's let's go have a drink yeah, after the show. I'll take you out, and, and we go out with Anne Reinking and 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 that whole group, and and um, it was. Uh, but yet they still were kind of like friends, you know. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's jump ahead a bit from from Pippin to what many would say is your signature role. Tell us how you came to be Marvin in March of the Falsettos. Story goes, Bill Finn didn't want you. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, he didn't. Uh, I mean, or, or, or I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure exactly, but I do know that that uh, Lapine kind of had to talk him into me because because I I actually auditioned for Jim, and Bill wasn't there, and and, and then. And then Jim said, "Okay, bring me. I, I, I we got to meet again, and I want you to bring me all of the music you have, and I want to go through it with you because he wanted to find something, some, some writer that Bill liked. So we came up with a Randy Newman song because Bill loves Randy Newman. So he says, Jim said, sing, sing this when you when you audition for Bill, and um, and I did, uh, and I think that." You know, the story was at the time that Bill just kind of saw Marvin as him, as himself. Bill was Marvin. So I didn't quite fit that, you know. And um, and uh, to be honest with you, again, I mean, we, we had some rocky, rocky times the first two or three weeks of rehearsal where it even got to the point where, where, where I, I kind of had to say, look, some somebody's got to not be here in rehearsal. It's either me or him. I said this to Lapine, you know. So because he's because he you know he he would sit very you know I don't know if you remember that little studio theater upstairs at Playwrights Horizon, tiny little space where we rehearsed, and uh, he would sit right there like not five feet from me, and I would do something, and he would like groan and put his head down, mm-hmm. and he'd like. Like he had a headache, and and you know, he he did that. You know, I have I of course I got to say too, just Bill is quite different now, and and we've actually it's many years ago, and we've grown to really love each other. But but it was a very rocky road we had right at first. Um, How did that show come together? Because sometimes I hear that, particularly with March. They were playing around with the shape of it and how it would would ultimately come together. Was there well, a lot they, of reworking going on? Well, that's where Jim was. Uh, Jim was such a big help to Bill. Uh, we had, you know, Jim just put a big had a big bulletin board up with with all of the with a three by five cards with all the t- song titles on them. You know, and Jim would keep rearranging them. You know, he would he would rearrange the cards, and then he would ha- put a blank card in there, and he would say to Bill, "We need a song about this." That's why on on Falsetto Land, uh, and on Falsettos, uh, uh, I think, um, but not March. I think Jim is actually credited as co-book writer uh, with Bill, because Jim was a playwright, is a playwright, and he was instrumental in shaping that show you know making it what it what it ultimately was and how much of a role did you have in shaping marvin was that also at play uh not yeah i mean it was just again again um once bill kind of gave it up and said okay rupert is marvin uh that then we were okay because jim you know jim just just kept wanting me to basically really just to be me, you know, I mean, he kept saying, look, you're a, you're, you're a, you're a kind of a neurotic guy in some ways I can see, but you're charming (laughs) and, and, and you just need to, you know, and that's, that's who Marvin is. Uh, And so basically, I mean, I I think it was, that whole show was a, that whole show was a really good instant instance of a director casting like Chip Zine and Steve Bogardus and Allison Frazier and then ultimately Faith Prince and, and then Barbara in the Broadway version. I mean, the, he, he just, he got, I think, really good people who just were those people for him. Let's explain for our audience who may only know the show called Falsettos, uh-huh. that March of the Falsettos in 1981 was a one-act musical, yeah. 70, 75 minutes long. Right. 
it was nine years later right. that what now people know as Act Two of Falsettos, called Falsetto Land, was written. What was it like to revisit that character nine years later, even though in the course of the show, the story itself, not that much time had passed. Right, Did you right. look at Marvin differently when you went back to him? Oh, absolutely. Well, well, yeah, because, uh, because of course, the whole AIDS crisis had happened. And, and this is a big reason why Bill felt he had to write more story to the Marvin story, you know, uh, in response to that. And, uh, and it really was like you know, it, it it was like going home again, you know, because no, to, you know, for my money, nobody writes like Bill writes. He's so, there's something about what he does. He writes, he writes somehow, sometimes the most profound things using the simplest of language. I don't know how he does it. You know, I mean, he, he can just say something very profound and but yet he said it like like I'd say it, you know, I just said it not not a poet, you know, and to you know, so so when we got into working on Falsetto Land on the first workshop of that and we started playing with this material, it was um, it was just great to be doing his work again. It was it was really because uh, it, it, it for 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 the actor, he's he's a he's a real good writer for actors, you know. I, I don't know many actors who don't like doing his stuff. Well, March of the Falsettos was 1981 at Playwrights. Right. 1990 was Falsetto Land. Then right. two years later, the Broadway version, that, as Howard points out, we now call Falsettos. Right. Again, you played Marvin. Any substantive differences in the Broadway version versus what you had done a decade earlier? Uh, not, not, not too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, Bill had Bill rewrote a few lyrics here and there. I think the the first number in the in the second act, I can't remember what it's called now, but uh, but there were a few references he wanted to change there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because it was now a second act of a, of a two act musical. Um, they, they, I think they they also added in "I'm Breaking Down," Trina's song that had been in in trousers, and uh, they he added that in for the Broadway version into March of the Falsettos or in the first act of Falsettos. But uh, again, there, here and there, there were little lyric fixes that he did, but not very much. And Jim's staging was basically the same as it had been uh, off-Broadway. You yourself were 11 years older than you had been in 1981 yes, when you yeah. did the first version. Um, did you see Marvin any differently? Did you, did you interpret him any differently in, in the Broadway version you... Maybe did I don't earlier. feel that I did, no. but you know there there was a there used to be a writer for the New York Times, David Richards. Yep. I think his name was right. David uh, David Richards was the Sunday critic, and interestingly enough, when Falsettos opened on Broadway, he wrote about my performance something like, "It's like Rupert has lived this life." You know, he he's so he, so in touch with Marvin. Because David had seen me back in, you know, back in March of the Falsettos days and, and everything else. Uh, so he, you know, he knew that I'd, I had been with this role for a while, off and on, you know. And, but I thought that was interesting that somehow I had grown up just like Marvin grows up in, in the second act or something. And, and, uh, but I didn't feel like I was doing anything different or approaching it differently. It's just that we all, of course had the, the experience of the AIDS crisis uh, in the 80s that we all went through, losing friends and family, as I did. Um, so that, you know, there certainly was a, a, maybe a little ri- more richness to it, perhaps. I don't know. In between the, the two halves of falsettos, in 1985, we suddenly saw your name in a playbill as a composer. How did you come to be... The one of the authors of Three Guys Naked from the Waist Down. <laughs> uh, well, actually, you know, go back a few years. I was in a musical called Swing at the Kennedy Center, not the swing that ultimately was on Broadway, but a, uh, but a show by Robert Waldman and Alfred Urey that had written The Robber Bridegroom. It was produced and directed by Stu Ostro, uh, and it had a book by a guy named Con Fleming. 
who uh, I've not heard of since, actually. But it was, um, I was in that show at the Kennedy Center with Jerry Colker, who I had, who had also played my brother, Lewis, in Pippin. And we were both in that show. And there, and, um, and Jerry ultimately wrote Three Guys Naked from the Waist Down with me. And this, this was, I think, before March, this was before March of All Settles. It was like 1980 that I did this, that we did Swing at the Kennedy Center. And sadly enough, though the score was terrific, the show just didn't work. And Jerry and I kept, you know, we, we were friends and we kept, we were backstage and we kept saying, you know, we could, we could write something that could work like that, at least better than this. In, in Probably our, not our, the first actor backstage to say this, you know. And we started just goofing around with comedy sketches because we both like to go to comedy you know, like like the Laugh Factory and the you know a lot of the comedy c- clubs, and we got this idea for a, a, a three character musical about stand up comics, and we actually started writing it while I was doing March of the Falsettos in 1981, and it finally and you know the gestation period of any musical, and this was even fairly quick. We had finally opened off Broadway in 1985. And I had always been a pianist. I always played the piano. And I just actually started trying to write a show. And I did. And we got it produced. And uh, it ran. But often, a run. often when you hear of actors who write a show, they're writing a part for themselves. You were not in the no. original cast, at least, of Three Guys No, Naked. Jerry actually was. And that was really by accident, in a way, because we lost an actor right before we were heading down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to to do the show at Playmakers Rep before we came back to New York. And um, and because Jerry knew the show, he actually stepped into the role, you know, and he ended up staying in the show. We're talking about uh, Three Guys Snake from the Waist Down that you were the composer on. A year later, you got the Tony Award for Sweet Charity as yeah. Oscar Lindquist. So how did you go from that to back to mainstream Broadway? How did you get into Sweet Charity? This is the Debbie uh, Allen revival. Yeah. yeah. yeah this is, uh, uh, well, I, again, I, I just got, I got a call from, uh, from uh, Bob Fosse, who directed it. Mm-hmm. And he, he directed that revival. This is, this is not long before he died. And of course, he'd like done the year. original in 66. Yeah, he had done the original in 66, and he was going to do this revival. I got a call from him, and he said, uh, you know, he said, I'd like you to be in, you know, I'm going to do Sweet Charity again with Debbie Allen, and I'd like you to be Oscar, but you need to audition for Cy Coleman, because Cy doesn't really know your work. He didn't he, he didn't see me in Pippin, and he might have seen me in The Happy Time, I don't remember now, but but you need to, I, I'd like you to come in and sing for, for, uh, for Cy. And actually, oh, at the time, I was in California, and I was staying, and I, I, was, I had a, still had an apartment out there, and I was, I was in California for a couple of months. I was doing some TV work, and I had flown back to New York, and this all happened very suddenly, this, this audition for Cy Coleman, and, um, and I said to Bob, well, I don't really have any music with me, and you want me to be there, like, what, in two hours, and I, gee, what should I sing? And he said, well, do you know Moon River? <laughs> <laughs> and I came in and I sang Moon River for Bob uh, for Cy Coleman, and uh, he liked me a lot, and so that's really how I got in it. <laughs> and Bob, as a lot of directors do, they love they do like to, they love to work with people that they've worked with because they you know if they've liked working with them you know because they know their work habits they know how their personalities they know that they want to be in the room with this person for for however many weeks i don't imagine you'd ever seen the original or have you no i didn't because you was a teenager at the first time broadway was. show i ever saw was cabaret in 68 when i came back to do the happy time oh. so i didn't see the original uh, and bob you know it was interesting when we when he the first day of rehearsal bob said you know what this i we this show creaks you know, it, it, we're not going to try to reinvent the wheel here. We're not going to reinvent it. We're not going to reimagine it. We just want to do a really good slam-bang production of what we did in 1966, which was 20 years before. But we all want to, we're going to work hard, and we're going, to make it, we're going to make it great. And that's basically what they did, except for the, the, the title song, Sweet Charity, which I sang in the show. 
Sai had rewritten it, the melody for the for the movie. I think it was, I think it was for the movie, and um, and so they decided to put that version in the Broadway, in the revival, and also he rewrote "I'm the Bravest Individual" with the duet that I sang with Charity in the in the elevator. He rewrote that for the for the revival. Um, so I got to do the new material. <laughs> yeah. As we skip back and forth from actor to composer, we then had your musical male on Broadway, right. we should say, had great success in a couple of regional productions. Yeah. It did not have a long run on Broadway, so it's a show more spoken about than seen. Can you just tell us about Mail? Well, we did it at the... It, we, oh, Mail opened at the, at the uh, Pasadena Playhouse. You know, I, I was going home, you know, uh, full circle. Uh, and I wrote the show with Jerry Colker, who I'd written three guys uh, with. Uh, it was also directed by a young guy named Andy Cadiff, who had directed three guys. And uh, they, Susie Dietz, out, out at the Passing Playhouse, really, who ran the Playhouse at the time, just heard some of the score and said, let's, let's do this show, you know? And, um, and so we did. Uh, Andy and Susie and my partner, uh, my collaborator, Jerry, uh, talked me into playing the lead in it. Uh, something I didn't want to do and something I would never, ever do again. But, uh... Not when you're doing a new show, a brand new show that you have to rewrite and you have to fix and, you know, because that's really why we were in Pasadena. We, we had some rehearsal time and we had also written the, the, the lead character to be this guy who was like never off stage. So I was exhausted again, another exhausting role, excuse me, and, um, and I never was able to sit out and watch the show, you know, because I was, I was in it, you know, so I had no perspective on it at all and um the uh it was a it actually was a huge success in los angeles it, the, the the critics loved it the audiences loved it and the playhouse is like i think about a 700 seat theater so it's like a small broadway house and we had some terrific people in it brian stokes mitchell was making his like going to make his broadway debut ultimately mary bond davis michelle pock uh uh, Brad Wong, what's his name now? B.D. Wong. B.D. I couldn't think of B.D. <laughs> for a second there. But he was in it. Uh, uh, it was a it was an amazing group of people, and uh, the the California audiences loved it. And we brought it back east, and they we went to the Kennedy Center and went to the Eisenhower, and we didn't get as good a reviews. The audiences didn't like it as much. But we still didn't get terrible reviews or anything. But I started to thinking, hmm. <laughs> now we never, ex I, I never expected Mail to to move to New York and be a huge smash hit. I didn't think it would, it, you know, would do that. But I thought, oh, we, 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 we'll probably get mixed reviews, and we, maybe we'll get a six month run out of it or seven month, and just get our feet wet on Broadway. Uh, ultimately, Mail opened at the Music Box Theater in 1988, I think, same year as Phantom of the Opera. And into the woods, <laughs> and chess, uh, but we got some of the worst reviews I've ever read in my life. I mean, it was it was like fascinating how much the critics. We got a few good ones, but the majority of the critics really were saying things like, "How could they? How could producers even think of producing this show?" You know, kind of mm. dismissive and everything. And I spent the next day sitting on my couch just like staring at the wall feeling like I've been hit by a truck so it was an interesting experience yeah. let me tell you as we hopscotch through your career 1993 was an interesting year with two very different shows quickly what was the experience of doing Shakespeare for Mark Lamus at Hartford Stage Merchant of Venice <laughs> Well, well, I'll tell you. This is, I'll sum it up this way. I did an audition. Mark just asked me to do it. I told him I've never done Shakespeare before. He said, "You're a musical actor. You're going to be great. You'll, you'll, I'll help you with the language." I get to the first day of rehearsal, and sitting there 
surrounded by this cast, probably half of them had gone to Yale or they were most of them had done tons of Shakespeare and Antonio, the merchant who I was playing, has the first speech in the play. (laughs) And I had this nightmare the night before that after I finished the first speech in the play, as we're sitting around the table, everyone just stops and looks at Lamos like, what have you done? What have you gotten us into? (laughs) But it ended up being uh, an amazing experience. Mark Lamos is like one of the best classical directors in our country, and I love doing it. Well, more in your usual metier, that same year you were doing uh, Putting It Together at the Manhattan Theater Club, the off-Broadway production. Many people know of the Broadway run, but you were with a different cast, an earlier version of the show. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, it was pretty swell. I mean, we had, uh, you know, uh, Julie Andrews was making her... uh, you know, her debut uh, after 35 years. You know, she hadn't been back to Broadway uh, in New York theater. So it was Julie Andrews and Chris Durang and, and Rachel York and Steve Collins and myself. And uh, it was it was pretty great. You know, we we were sold out. There were Cameron McIntosh actually was the enhancement money behind the production for Manhattan Theater Club. And he was like a little kid, you know, because there was a there was a queue clear around the block from, Man- you know, in, a, in the middle of a snowstorm because people wanted to see Julie Andrews again. And we had a terrific time. It was fun. As we kind of wrap up, uh, looking toward the future, you have composed another musical called Streets of America. Give us a little yeah. preview of that. Uh, well, quickly, it's... Um, it's, I'm, I've written it with a guy named Matt Ryapel, uh, a different writer. Uh, we just did a production of it at Point Park University in Pittsburgh, where I've directed a couple of things. Uh, it's, a, it's about uh, a group of young people in 1969 in San Francisco during the Vietnam War and, and during a three-day celebration of peace, music, and politics much like, you know, like the Monterey Pop Festival or, or that kind of thing. And it's about three, and, it's, and, and it really focuses on three brothers and what happens to these guys during this time. And uh, it has a real kind of folk rock score, and we have some interest in it. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, we just finished another draft based on what we saw in Pittsburgh, which was just last November. And... Um, and we're cautiously optimistic that maybe this one will get produced. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, currently Professor Callahan and Legally Blonde, <laughs> thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.